Hey guys, we're so excited to share this message with you on the Center Set podcast. My name is Ethan and I lead worship here at Center Set. We'd love for you to download our app so that you can keep up with all that is happening in our community. Text Center Set to 77977 to download. What's up? Good evening. Who's excited for church? Come on. If we have not met, my name is Ali. Welcome to, to I almost said Center Set, Bold Church. Bold Church. Uh, my wife and I, we started this crazy place with a lot of passion four years ago. And uh, let me just tell you, if you're new to church, let me tell you, you are VIP here. We created this church with a simple heart, a place where not only Christians could grow their faith. Come on. Anybody Christians growing their faith here? Two of you. Thank God for the two of you. It's also a place where you can explore faith. So if you've got questions, if you've got doubts, this is the perfect place. We are in a collection of talks titled All the Feels. All the fields. And it is a collection of talks about depression, anxiety, and mental health. And I started this collection of talks two weeks ago. Really, we're on a second pandemic. Uh, the first was COVID. The second one is mental health. That uh, anxiety is the highest it's ever been in our culture right now. There are more people depressed right now than ever before in American history. Suicides is the double right now as are our homicides in America. The number two cause of death among 11-year-olds to 30-year-olds is suicide. We got a second pandemic and no one's talking about it. I just believe by faith that the church should be leading this conversation. The church should be having this conversation about anxiety, depression, and mental health. So whether you're in the room or you're watching online, I want to conclude this collection of talks. I got a good sermon today. It's going to help some people. Titled this, It's Time. Someone say, It's Time. time. To ambush anxiety. Turn your neighbor and say, Defense wins championships. Turning up with said, offense wins dynasties, though. <laughs> Normally, when people preach about depression and anxiety, they give you de- things to do after the depression. Defense. Today's about the offense. Okay. We're going to be the Golden State Warriors today. <laughs> We're going to be offense. How, how do we ambush anxiety? If you have to bow your heads and close your eyes, I just believe God's going to speak today. Help some people. God, thank you so much, Lord, that we gather in your name. I'm just believing, Jesus, that that there's a name above all names, that there's a name above depression, there's a name above anxiety, there's a name above cancer, there's a name above sickness, it's the name of Jesus, the name above all names, God, that we can find hope and healing in your name, Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would reveal the scriptures, that you would show us a way out. And if you believe that, everybody said, everybody said, come on. Uh, There's a modern problem that uh, a lot of modern millennials have that we think we're the first of every generation. That we invented mental health, that we we solved this problem, that we're going to have mental awareness like yoga and like breathing exercises. And we we think this is a new problem, so our solutions are going to fix it. I'm trying to convince you this is not a new problem. People have been having mental health issues for centuries. Let me read you a quote from over 250 years ago. It comes from a dude named Thomas Jefferson. There are indeed gloomy and hypochondriac minds, inhabitants of diseased bodies, disgusted with the present and despairing of the future, always counting that the worst will happen, because it may happen. To these I say, how much pain have caused the evils of which have never happened? For those of you who went to public school, what's he saying? He says, we worry about things that never come to pass. Come on. And what's crazy, if you don't know who this man is, he's, he's, he's the, one of the founding fathers of America. He's the third president of the United States. And this man used his platform, his influence, to fight for freedom. He wanted a nation to where every man is created equal in the eyes of God. 
which creates this tension in his life because his public life didn't match his private life. On one hand, he's fighting for freedom. On one hand, he owns 600 slaves. How many know when you have that tension, it's going to create anxiety? And so often, modern people think this is a new phenomenon, but no, it existed 200 years ago. And the second issue that we often have with anxiety and depression is we, we're always playing defense. After we can't sleep, after we've lost our appetite, after we, we have to go on meds, what do I do? What are three things to come out of depression? Jesus wants to give you some things to not even get into it in the first place. And he, he wants to help you uh, combat depression and anxiety. And, and really get to understand that anxiety and, and panic and depression were all birthed out of this parent named fear. Someone say fear. Fear is a good thing, by the way. Often Christians are afraid of fear. Often because in the scriptures it says, do not be afraid. It's repeated 365 times. Do not be afraid. One for every day that you're afraid. But fear often is not a bad thing. You should be afraid when you see a snake. You should be afraid when you see cats. Those are demonic. Come on. When you cross the street, what do we do? We look both ways before we, because we don't want to get hit by a car. Often fear is not a bad thing. It's a mechanism that God created in you to protect you. And it really follows this pattern, what's called an environmental cue, a behavior, and a result. See, when I walk into the street, when I cross the sidewalk, when I'm crossing the highway, there's a cue that I've placed my foot in a new area. And the behavior is I look both ways. That's why children, it's, fear is also a learned behavior. That's why kids run in the streets because they're not afraid of being hit. You have to teach them, look at them, no, no, no. You got to look both ways before you cross the street. And when I don't see cars, then I cross the street. And often what we don't realize is that this is not a modern phenomenon. This is the way our brain has always worked. And uh, whether we were thousands of years ago in cavemen wondering, where am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to eat today? Because I got to catch my meal. Today we have modern problems, but the anxiety is still there. Is my cell phone going to work on this part of the house? Is DoorDash going to bring me my food that's still warm? Come on. These are not a modern problem. It's an old problem that we've been dealing with from the beginning of time. And really, God created this thing called the prefrontal cortex. Because it's a long word. I'm saying PFC. Some of you are at 5 o'clock. You thought I said KFC. No, no, no. This is PFC. Your PFC, your prefrontal cortex it was designed by God, listen, to not only help you with creativity and planning, it interprets data to help you predict the future. See, when you cross the street, you know you're supposed to look both ways. But even though you've never crossed the highway, you know, I've done this before, it's just a bigger street. There's 10 lanes instead of one. And so your prefrontal cortex, it could predict the future based on what you've experienced. Where anxiety comes is where it doesn't know what's going to happen. It can't predict what's going to happen. And how many of you know, this is why we need the word of God. Because science and medicine, there's a part where knowledge ends and listen, faith needs to begin. There's a part where, where, where only God is all-knowing. Only God sees tomorrow. Only, not science, not medicine. This is why we've got to live by faith and not by sight. We've got to live by faith and not by knowledge. Anyone believe that today? Come on. God, he says this in, uh, in t- verse t- 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. I'm going to pause right there. See, fear is not just a feeling. It's a spirit. 
See, everything is spiritual, but not everything is only spiritual. So many times, your anxiety, your depression, sometimes it's because you don't know what's going to happen. You're overwhelmed with tomorrow. You're overwhelmed. Will this business succeed? Will, will I ever get married? But sometimes it's a spirit. Don't start the business. It will fail. Don't write the book. No one will read it. See, all of your friends are getting married. Nobody wants you. Not even COVID. Come on. <laughs> and you got to realize that it's a demonic spirit that wants to instill fear in you. You know, what, you know why? Because fear paralyzes you. Fear keeps you still. Fear keeps you from stepping out into your calling. And I love what the Word of God says. That, but God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power. Why? Because when you're paralyzed, you need power to step forward. And it says of love. Why? Because you don't tell fear, go away, fear. First John 4 says perfect love cast out fear. The way you get rid of fear is not by telling fear to go away. You invite love in and love pushes fear out. And then it says, of a sound mind. Someone say sound mind. I love that. It's not a depressed mind. It's not an anxiety-filled mind. It's not an overwhelmed mind or an anxious mind. God wants to give you a sound mind. And he, this is a problem that this was written 2,000 years ago, and God had a solution to it. I know modern people think, no, 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 we're the best generation. We, we know how to solve everything. No, God knew this was going to happen, and he provided a solution to it. He wants to help you with your fear. He wants to help you with your anxiety. He wants to help you in often situations where you feel helpless. And another thing that we think in our culture is that weak people, they get anxiety and depression. The scriptures actually teach us the opposite, that it's the strong that feel anxious. Why? Because when you're, when you're starting a new business that you never started before, you don't know if it's going to succeed. So your prefrontal cortex can't predict what's going to happen. When you want to write a book that you're not sure if anyone's going to read it, you have to step out by faith, not by knowledge, because your prefrontal cortex can't predict. So the, the presence of anxiety means you've stepped out of your comfort zone. Only strong people do that. So if you're here today and you're beating yourself up because you have anxious thoughts, you're depressed, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, it's a sign of strength, not weakness, actually. The scriptures are actually filled with people who are following God with all of their heart and their life was dominated by anxiety and panic. Let me give you some of these examples. The first one was, is Job, my goodness, this dude lost his wife, his house, his dogs, everything. And he said it, he, he cursed the day he was born and wished he was a stillborn. Job wished he died. He said, I wish when I was born I died right there. Abraham. Dude, never owned a home. Some of you millennials are freaking out if you're ever going to own a home in Silicon Valley. Abraham was a sojourner. He lived in a tent, yet he lived by faith because God was his reward and his shield. His shield and his exceeding great reward. And he said, I am dust of the earth. I love Jonah. Jonah preached revival. 300,000 people in a city became Christian because of Jonah. Dude goes out to, outside the city, gets shade under a branch and a worm eats the branch and falls over to God, kill me. I, I can't even have my, 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 my umbrella keeping me safe. I love Paul. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And in the scriptures, he says, I despaired even of life. My favorite is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, the night before he's arrested. It says that Jesus Christ, his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, and he sweated drops of blood. Medical doctors will tell you that you only sweat when anxiety is through the roof. And my favorite part about the story of Jesus is the great temptation that he went through in the wilderness. He was fasting for 40 days, and the devil said, 
strike this rock and turn it into bread. Why? Because Jesus was hungry. He was tempted by something he wanted. And often Christians forget one of the temptations was suicide. The devil takes Jesus to the top of the church and says, jump off. If you're really the son of God, jump off. How many know what's happening on May 19th in our country? It's a sign of revival. Taco Bell's bringing back Mexican pizza. (laughs) Prayer works, because I've been praying for two years. On May 19th, I have it in my phone. I am going to Taco Bell. And let me tell you, I'm getting more than one of them. And even if I offer Pastor Yasmin one, she doesn't want one. Because she's not tempted by something she doesn't desire. Why would the devil tempt Jesus with suicide if he didn't have those thoughts? It's not a sign of weakness that you are depressed. It's a sign of strength. You're probably doing something you've never done before. My favorite example is if it's David. David was a man after God's own heart. This man was a warrior. He was Justin Bieber. He, he was LeBron James, Justin Bieber, and a king. He was like the renaissance of renaissance man. And if you read the Psalms, man, in one verse, he wants to like, God, I love you. I'll give you my life. The next verse is like, God, can we kill that guy? Can we punch out his teeth? It's like, whoa, can we actually pray those prayers, Jesus? I, I got some people, come on, that I want to say that about. And he had some high highs and he had some low lows. And the point I'm trying to make is God helped those people that were struggling with anxiety, that were struggling with depression. If he did it for them, listen, he can do it for you. And if he helped them, he can help you. If you're ever going to ambush anxiety, come on, you're going to need to do it with the word of God. If you believe that, someone say amen. And he wants to give you a plan of attack because often with anxiety and depression, it's defense. God wants to give you some offense. He wants you to push back the darkness. He wants you to push back those feelings. I want to give you a verse that will help you memorize it. Proverbs 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Let me tell you when this was written. 3,500 years ago by a man named Solomon. When you say the Bible's irrelevant, no, boo-boo, you're irrelevant. This is a timeless book. God knew what we would deal with before we even got there. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But what's the hope? But a good word. Someone say good word. I got a good word for you today. And like any wannabe Pentecostal preacher, I don't have a three-point sermon. I got a four-point sermon. Come on. Let me show you the four words I want to give you today. I want you to shout them out when you see them. Word number one, name. Someone say name. Name. Word number two, shift. Shift. Word number three, stop. Stop. Word number four, add. Add. I want to give you a sermon. These are psychological things. Doctors and scientists will tell you, if you do these four things, you will overcome and you will ambush anxiety. I'm going to show you how these four things are all found in the scripture. Are you ready for God to help you? Are you ready for God for to speak to you? Number one, you got to name the trigger. Someone say, name the trigger. you got to identify the thing that's causing you to be anxious. Let me give you the definition of, of, of a trigger. Trigger is any stimulus, sight, smell, or sound that impacts your behavior. What causes you to be depressed? What causes you to be overwhelmed? For some of you, it's a person. When they're in the room and you walk in the room, you're like, ooh, your booty gets clenched, right? Let's be honest. They hurt you. They lied to you. They betrayed you. And when you're in the same room, you get overwhelmed. For some of you, it's a place. It's a family reunion. It's an old high school. It's an old workplace that just overwhelms you because there are so many negative experiences associated with that place. For some of you, it's an age. 
You got overwhelmed when you turn 30. I should be married by now. I should have kids by now. I should have started the business by now. And think how, why we call it a midlife crisis. Because people turn 40 and they're overwhelmed. And they become, when they become 50, like God's done with me. No, no, no. As long as you're breathing, God's not done. For some of you, it, 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 it's, it, it's social media. Let's just be honest, right? God has blessed you with a wife and kids, a beautiful family. And you spend an hour and a half a day looking at all the things you don't have. Saying their family's perfect, my family's ugly. <laughs> he's got a six-pack, he's got something else. Come on. <laughs> Instead of being grateful and thankful for what God's given you, you're complaining about what you don't have. Is it social media that's triggering you? And, and, and I got married in 2013, right around, Instagram came out in 2010, so it really wasn't like huge the way it is today, and certainly TikTok wasn't around. But this new generation, you like grew up on social media from like middle school. And so now your physical life is no different than your digital life. So you'll date someone for a year or two, and, and not only do you follow them, all of your friends and social workers follow them. And, and then even when you unfollow them, all of your friends will show that person on your there's a story. So you'll break up with someone, but you'll still see them in the digital. And like, oh my gosh, they're already dating someone else? Look at his new girlfriend, and she has a job. Wow. Look at, his, look, at that, look at his new boyfriend. He's got a six-pack. What do I have? Nothing. Come on. And is it social media? Not just the comparison, but the people that you're seeing. That's an honest question. What triggers you? I'm going to use myself as an example because I'm on this journey. I've been in therapy for over three and a half years now, trying to get emotionally healthier, spiritually healthier. I got a lot of triggers. Ask Pastor Yaz. A lot of things upset me. But one of the areas that I've identified this last year that really just triggers me, it's going to be shocking to some of you, is laziness. Laziness. And one of the ways you identify a trigger is that you have uncontrollable emotions around this trigger. I get angry when I see lazy people. And you got to understand this. Depression is really just an inward anger. That's all really depression is. And it all began, this trigger of mine began at the age of 14. Silicon Valley, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. As a 14-year-old, we couldn't leave campus. We, we couldn't leave because we didn't have, like, McDonald's was two miles away. So you could walk two miles and then come back sweaty and eat on the way to school. I didn't want to do that, so we stayed on campus. We played basketball. Anybody love basketball? Come on. Anybody love the Warriors? Come on. Anybody love the Lakers? Please leave. This church is not for you. <laughs> Kidding. But imagine a 14-year-old, I'm at school playing basketball, and there's, there's like 30, 40 people out there outside, and you play five on five. So if you lost, you get off the court. And if you won, you stayed. So the goal was to play all lunch long, winning again and again. And there was this one guy in our group of friends who was very, very popular, very, very athletic, but the way that he played was very selfish. He'd want to play hero ball. Anybody ever heard that term, hero ball? Where you want to shoot the ball whenever the ball is in your hands, but you don't want to play defense because you want to be the hero. And it was fun to play against him because you often win. But one time, randomly, I got pegged with this guy on my team. We're running hard. We're trying our best, and we're getting our butts kicked because this guy is playing lazy. And I lose it as a 14-year-old. <laughs> now, you think I'm, my wife and I were watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, and like seeing how competitive Michael Jordan, she pauses like, oh my God, I just understood you better than I've ever. That's you. I, I'm, I'll step on my mom to win. Come on. 
I'm 14. I tell this guy to get off the court. I'm done playing with. I was like ready to fight this guy. I'm like, get off the court. He's like, you won't win. Winning isn't scoring more points. Winning is giving your best, and you're not giving your best. Get off the court. We lost, but in my heart we won. But what I didn't realize that day is I developed insecurities. I was afraid of shame because everyone was laughing at us. Everyone was embarrassing us. And I wanted to avoid the embarrassment because my team was weak. I was viewed as weak. Because my team was less than, I was viewed as less than. And there are days, honestly, I'll, I'll see Pastor Yaz just chilling. I'm like, what are you doing? Are, are you working hard? And it will trigger something. She's laughing right now. We've had so many fights. Uh, listen, I'll walk through the lobbies, and I'll see people on their phone watching football, and I literally want to throw something at some people. But i got to be honest. Your laziness doesn't cause me to be angry. It's a trigger. And so many people, you, you fight the symptoms in your life, not the root. Do you know what triggers you? Because this isn't just psychology. This is in the scriptures. There's a dude that comes to Jesus. He's, he's crossing a body of water. He gets out of the boat, and there's this demon-possessed man who needs help. He's like, I can't live normally. I'm living in this graveyard. Would you please help me? I love what Jesus does before he heals him. Luke, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 5. Then Jesus asked him, what is your What's that word? Name. name. Even Jesus wanted to name the guy's trick. And the man said, my name is Legion. Jesus did not cast the demon out until he knew the name of the demon. Do you know what triggers you? Or do you just try, oh, I always get angry. But why do you get angry? And if you cross-reference this story to Mark chapter 9, which is one of my favorite stories, the disciples have been anointed by God. They can preach the gospel. They can heal the sick. They can cast out demons. And there's this 12-year-old boy who they can't help. And they bring him to Jesus. Jesus, we did a Jericho march around him. We, we gave him a shower with olive oil. We prayed all day. Nothing happened. Look at what Jesus says. Mark chapter 9. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you deaf, you mute and deaf spirit. Let me read it again because you didn't see it. You mute and deaf spirit. The reason the demon didn't come out, because the demon couldn't hear. I wrote down like this. You have to name it in order to change it. If you don't know your trigger, you'll never get healed of your trigger. What causes you to be anxious? If you can't name it, you'll never be healed of it. Number one, name the trigger. Number two, shift the spotlight. Someone say, shift the spotlight. The way, so say it a little louder. It's five o'clock. You've had some coffee. Say, shift the spotlight. Amen. Shift the spotlight. The way you think about yourself, the thoughts you have about yourself, and the way you speak to yourself, it matters. You will 100% of the time live according to how you think. You need to think about what you're thinking about. And some of you don't realize, like you look at my story, you come my story like, Pastor Ali, it was just a silly basketball game. Maybe for you it was a basketball game. But for me it was an inflection point of shame and embarrassment. And because my team was weak, I see, I saw myself as weak. And because I saw my team as less than, it became my identity that I was less than. What causes you to be triggered? And do you know what language you use to describe yourself? See, what most people don't realize is that you have a negative self-talk. 
You say you're ugly. You say you're undeserving. You say you're not worthy. You know what, what happens when you think you're less than? You live as if you're less than. Do you know what happens when you think you're not deserving of something? You live as if you're not deserving of something. Do you know what happens when you think you're broken? You live as if you were broken. And once again, this is why we need the word of God to renew us, to transform us. That's why Romans chapter 12 says, you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are you thinking about what you're thinking about? One of the best-selling books last year, top five, it's called Think Like a Monk. I was so pissed off when I read this book. I'm like, this is garbage. So I'm doing a sermon series in August called Think Like a Monk because I know a monk who came out of the grave and he wants to tell you how to think. It's going to change. because when you, It's not what would Jesus do. It's what would Jesus think. Because when you think like Jesus, you'll live like Jesus. So study in 2013 says too fat to fit through the door. Google it. It is awesome. They, they, they gathered a bunch of obese people and a bunch of people with anorexia. And they, had, they did this social experiment where they took a door and they just narrowed it by six inches. And it was shocking what happened. The women with anorexia, when they'd walk through, they would turn sideways. Because they perceived themselves as overweight. That they couldn't fit at the door. I wonder how many people in this room that God opens an opportunity for you. He has a business for you. He has a partner in life, and you don't think you're worthy, so you shift. And you don't even, sometimes some of you don't even walk through the door because you don't think you're worthy enough to walk through the door. Or if you do walk through the door, you turn sideways because you don't feel called and anointed to walk through the door like a normal person. It's an effect called the spotlight effect. Someone say spotlight effect. It's this idea that psychologists will say that, that when you have an insecurity, when you have something that you're ashamed about, it feels, it's not truth, it feels like there's a spotlight on it. For some of you, your, your spotlight effect is your ears. You, you don't like your ears. Or maybe it's your nose, it's too big. Or maybe it's your forehead. I don't know, maybe for some of you, for people with anorexia, it's that they think they're too big. And what happens with the spotlight effect is you walk around with social anxiety, thinking and believing that everyone is looking at you. And everyone sees what you see. And everyone's thinking about you. It reminds me of the words of Eleanor Roosevelt. And she said this, You wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do. You ever, you ever go to work with like the wrong two pair of shoes? Anyone ever do that? I'm the only village idiot. Okay, thank you for... You ever, you ever go to work with a stain on your shirt you didn't realize? And then you do. And then you're nervous in every meeting. Like, oh my gosh, they're going to think less of me. And you think everyone notices it. That's what the spotlight effect does. You magnify your issues when the reality is spotlight effect. Doctors say it's not even true. No one's thinking about you. Do you know why? Because they're all thinking about themselves. <laughs> and just because you have weaknesses doesn't mean you're weak. And just because you make mistakes, listen, doesn't mean that you're a mistake. And if you're ever going to ambush anxiety, you've got to name the trigger and you've got to shift the spotlight off of you and outside of you. Again, this is not psychology. This is scripture. Jesus models this with a man in the Bible. Uh, one of the 12 disciples is a dude named Peter. Anybody ever heard the name Peter? I know we have a, a new and growing church. Peter is one of my favorite. He's the cussing disciple. He preached a sermon where 3,000 people got saved, but this dude is packing like a gang member. He brought a sword one time. Someone talked back to Jesus, cut the dude's ear off. That's my kind of bro. I want a guy like that on my team. This guy, listen, 
one time got upset and wanted Jesus to throw down fire on a city and kill all of them. I'm like, bro, you're supposed to be a pastor. Show some love. This guy's crazy. This guy, though, made some mistakes. And if he didn't get healing from that mistake, he would always have that same trigger and walk in shame. Let me show you that, that, that story. It's in John chapter 18, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. This guy followed Jesus for three years. Left his boating business, left his friends, left his family, left everything to follow Jesus. Saw Jesus do miracles, heal the sick, the blind, everything. And then when a 12-year-old girl with braces, listen to Justin Bieber, ask, do you know Jesus? No, I don't know him. Do you know why? Because his prefrontal cortex was overwhelmed. His, his Messiah is getting beaten to death, and he's thinking, well, if they do that to him, what are they going to do to me? And because he can't predict the future, we'll judge him as a betrayer. But the reality is he's overwhelmed in this moment with anxiety because he does not know what's going to happen. And what's crazy is if he doesn't get healing from this moment of shame, he will live in that shame for the rest of his life. And I love how the verse continues. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire. Someone say charcoal fire. Charcoal. I'm going to show you why that's important. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. What's crazy is that three chapters later, Jesus not only dies, but he comes back from the grave. That's why Easter we celebrate the tomb is empty. There's news to tell. Come on, it's good news. But at this point, from Friday to Sunday, something significant happens. Peter was not the only one that walked away from the faith. All of the disciples did. They all went back to their old jobs. They all went back to fishing. And Peter is now walking away from the ministry and he's going back to being a fisherman. And Peter's not the only one. So did Judas. I'm going to point this out. I'm going to preach on this. This is a sermon I'm going to preach in a couple weeks called The Power of Community. Judas suffered alone and he committed suicide. Peter suffered in community and got healed. I wrote down like this, isolation intensifies your pain, community cures your pain. In a month, we're starting groups. Sign up, because you can't get healing alone. Look what happens in John chapter 21. Peter has walked away. He's denied Jesus. He thinks it's over. And Jesus, look what he does. When they got out on land, they saw a, what's that word? Charcoal fire. What's Jesus doing? This is the equivalent of Jesus showing up to me and throwing me a basketball saying, let's go play some basketball alley. Let's go get healing. Just because that guy was lazy doesn't mean your identity is small. Just because your team is weak doesn't mean you're weak. And he's taking Peter back to the fire where he walked away and he says, Jesus, you denied me three times. But Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times. Because what's he doing? He's naming the trigger. And he's shifting the spotlight so that when Peter thinks of a charcoal fire, it's his restoration, not his destruction. It's his him coming back, not him walking away. Is this helping anyone today? If you want to ambush anxiety, number one, you got to name the trigger. Number two, got to shift the spotlight. Number three, got to stop catastrophizing. Someone just shout, stop. I don't want to hear that second word because half of you can't even say it. So we're not going to go there. Stop catastrophizing. It's a modern word for a common thing that we all experience. Catastrophizing is where you experience pain and a setback, and you go to the worst possible scenario. 
Let's say, for example, you're driving to work and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm 15 minutes late. And you don't realize that the Bay Area has this demonic thing called traffic. And it's even worse now that everyone's going back to the office. What should take a 15-minute drive is now a 45-minute drive. So now you're not 15 minutes late. You're going to be an hour late to work, and you're freaking out. Like, oh, my gosh, my boss is going to come in like Donald Trump and say, you're fired. And he's going to throw, he's going to throw me in empty boxes, pick up your stuff, and go home. And you're, like, and, and, you're, and you're driving to work. Think of the worst possible scenario. Then not only are you going to get fired, you're going to drive home with this box, walk, doing this walk of shame by all your employees, all laughing at you, all thinking you're a joke. And by the time you get home, your wife's already there, packed with her new boyfriend, who's got a Harley Davidson, a six-pack, and a dog that you wouldn't let her get, but now he's going to let her have. Come on. And say, I'm done. Am I the only one? Okay, I'm room full of liars. Psychologists tell us that most people will catastrophize even common things. You'll go to the worst scenario, even though it hasn't happened. It's called a dress rehearsal for disaster. And our bodies are designed. It's a comfort mechanism. We think of the worst thing that can happen because when it does happen, it doesn't hurt us as bad. Go, oh, see, I knew. I knew it was going to happen like that. And often God will he'll want you to start a business and you'll catastrophize. Oh, if I start, it's going to go bankrupt. He'll want you to write a book. If I write it, no one's going to read it. He'll put a woman on your heart. Go ask her out. If I ask her, she's going to reject me. What we don't realize is we're using our imagination not to imagine the things that God can do, but the things that will never happen. And we hold ourselves back from the very things that the Holy Spirit is nudging us towards. Mark Twain says it like this. I have a lot of worries in my life of which have never happened. Psychologists say that 85% of the stuff that we think about and worry about never come to pass but we stress out about it. You have one imagination. You get to choose how you want to use it. Do you want to envision life and blessing and God giving you opportunities? Or do you want to use that same imagination to think of death and destruction? But God can't do that part for you. He, he won't force you to think certain thoughts. That's why you have to renew your mind. That's why you have to step out in faith even though everyone in here feels fear. What I love about this question, it says, are you predicting the life catastrophe or the melody? Let me explain what this means. Your prefrontal cortex, the PFC, not the KFC, I know you're hungry, the PFC, it's not just the part of your brain that predicts the future and helps you be creative. It's the part of your brain that when it hears a melody, it helps you dance. My daughter, this is her favorite dance move. Dad, dad. She does this over and over again. Dad, dad, dad. We film her doing this, right? That's, I don't know where she got that move, but that's her move. And what my daughter's doing, she's her prefrontal cortex hears this song. She hears the melody, and she's predicting where the song's going to go. Anybody love EDM? Come on. These are the spirit-filled people. Every EDM song has this point where it crescendos, it goes up, and the beat drops, and everyone goes crazy. Why does everyone in the room jump up and down at the same time? Because your prefrontal cortex hears the melody and hears it building and knows when it's going to drop. 
See, your prefrontal cortex can predict the good and the bad. It can see blessing and curse. It can see life and death. This tool that God gave you was meant to help you with imagination, not hold you back from catastrophizing the worst. What I love about this subject is that when you follow Jesus, he doesn't promise you a health-free life. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It might be hard. It doesn't mean catastrophes don't happen. But you don't live your life expecting them to happen. Because when they do happen, you know what scientists find out? The people that suffer the most are the most grateful in life. My my dad, I said mentioned this last week, he's in an ICU unit. They say he has a 20% chance. And it doesn't make me angry. It makes me grateful that I have two healthy kids. I hug them more because of the suffering. But how do I stop catastrophizing, Pastor Allen? Jesus spent his largest, most famous sermon on this very subject. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Stop worrying about the worst case scenario, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow and reap or stow away in barns? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? Yet they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So stop worrying, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry and catastrophize about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And everybody said? Amen. The Bible's not irrelevant. Jesus knew what you were going to go through. And he spoke to it. If you want to ambush anxiety, name the trigger. Shift the spotlight. Stop catastrophizing. And number four... Add a dot, dot, dot. Someone shout add. I love this idea. Often when we have anxious thoughts, thoughts of worry and anxiety, it's about the future. I did not envision that I would be here right now. I thought I would be here, but reality is here. My expectation was here, but I'm living this, and that gap is painful. I'm 30, Pastor Ali. I should have had kids with a house and a home and a business by now. I'm 40, Pastor Ali. I should be excelling in my career and I haven't even started that business yet. And this pain of where we think we should be versus where we are, it cripples us. And often, the period of our life, we think is a death sentence to our life. I'm still single, period. My marriage is still broken, period. I haven't wrote the book, period. I haven't started the business, period. And the pain 
and the expectation of not doing that, not stepping out, leaves us hopeless. We stop believing. We stop praying. We stop expecting God for more. This is where I was. We, were, we have been doing church for 53 weeks at 5 p.m. 53, one too many, if you ask me. And tomorrow, we might sign a contract. Come on. I don't want to even say in the details because it's still too good to be true. But I want to be honest. There was a season I stopped praying. I stopped believing. Because I said in my heart, we're at 5 o'clock, period. We'll never get out of 5 p.m., period. We'll always be in this hot room that feels like hell, period. It's April. Wait till we get to July. You won't be laughing. Ha, ha, ha. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And I stopped believing. But if you want to be a person of faith, you got to add the dot, dot, dot. You know what the dot, dot, dot is? It's a grammar. I'm married to a grammar Nazi. It's an ellipsis by her definition. It was invented in the 1500s. It was made popular by William Shakespeare. He used it in his plays. And a dot, dot, dot is just saying it's an unfinished sentence. You are an unfinished sentence. If you're still breathing, you're an unfinished sentence. And the way that you ambush anxiety, the way that you push back anxiety, you name the trigger, you shift the spotlight, you stop catastrophizing, and you add a dot, dot, dot. And you see this in the scriptures. In Mark chapter 5, we talked about Jesus meeting the guy with a demon possession. I'm not going to put it on the screen because there's way too much scripture to read, but it's Mark chapter 6. Jesus says, go to the other side after he heals the dude. He says, I want to be alone. I want to pray. Guys, cross over. And the disciples begin to row because they're fishermen. They know how to do this. They're rowing across the Sea of Gesem, uh, Galilee. And theologians will tell us that this sea is only four miles long. And the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 6, they've ridden three and a half miles, three to four miles. If you cross-reference this story in Mark chapter 6 to Matthew chapter 14, it tells us that they're exhausted, that they're ready to quit, they're ready to stop rowing, they're ready to throw in the towel. Do you know when it's darkest? right before it's dawn. These men have been rowing all night long, frustrated. These are expert fishermen. And Jesus, in the morning, says, I'm done praying. And homie, because he's God, begins to walk across the water, meets the men, and calms the storm. And right when the men were about to quit, right when they were about to give up, Jesus not only calms the storm, but moments later, they land on dry land. He came to encourage some people you are inches away from your breakthrough because you're catastrophizing the worst and because you're still breathing your life is a dot 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 can I make this practical this this word that you need to add to your vocabulary somebody shout yet I haven't written the book I haven't started the business I haven't had a Mexican pizza at Taco Bell. Yeah. I haven't felt revival. Yeah. God hasn't broken the addiction. Yeah. God hasn't healed the marriage. Yeah. God hasn't set me free. Yeah. God hasn't healed my faith. Yeah. God hasn't broken that, that, that brokenness. Yeah. Come on, is there anybody excited for the Word of God today? Yeah. He hasn't changed me. 
Thanks so much for listening. We hope this message impacted you and inspires you to draw closer to Jesus. Subscribe to this podcast and give us a follow on Instagram at Centerset Church to keep up with all that God is doing in our community. Also, we'd love to be in prayer with you. If you have any prayer requests, please send them to info at centerset.church.